Good afternoon, Your Honours. May it please the Court. My name is Michael Henry. I'm an Assistant Attorney General with the North Carolina Department of Justice. In an unusual turn of events, at least for me, I, I didn't write the state's briefing before the Court of Appeals or this Court, but I did add my signature to the state's brief in this Court and will be arguing on behalf of the state today. I'd like to save five minutes for rebuttal, should it be necessary. Um, it might be helpful to start with what this case is not about. It's not about whether the jury could have found Caleb Adams behaved badly or uh, that defendant could have rightly feared for her life. It's not about whether defendant presented evidence from which the jury could have found she acted in self-defense. No one disputes these matters, and the jury was indeed instructed on self-defense. Rather, the case is about whether there was evidence from which the jury could have concluded that defendant was an aggressor for purposes of self-defense. And my argument today is that there was indeed such evidence, and in finding this not to be the case, the Court of Appeals erroneously viewed the evidence in the light most favorable of the defendant, and therefore that the Court of Appeals should be reversed. Touching on, briefly on, the key facts, um, Caleb and defendant had what was a very high drama relationship um, in or around 2015. They were both married to others and having multiple affairs, including with each other. The relationship was volatile, it involved numerous arguments, reconciliation, methamphetamine use, and episodes in which defendant contacted Caleb's wife. Including among these was a call from defendant to Caleb's wife around midnight on the evening before his death, telling her that she and Caleb were having an affair. At 6 a.m. the following morning, Caleb called defendant and said he was on his way to her house. He had been in some sort of trouble with a mess supplier who had been trying to locate Caleb. Defendant texted the supplier, let him know he was on the way, and then texted Caleb and asked him not to come. At 6.28, and the times are important here just because in this case in particular, it's sort of the next two or three minutes that everything, everything happens. 6.28, defendant texted Caleb's supplier to let him know that Caleb had arrived. <clears throat> defendant told law enforcement subsequent to that that Caleb arrived angry, entered her bedroom, demanded her phone. She was trying to delete text messages with Caleb's supplier at the time, and she refused to turn over the phone. Caleb became enraged, picked up the pistol from the nightstand, pointed it at her. He ultimately dropped the gun and grabbed her. There was a struggle, and she shot him. At trial, she added various details, including that Caleb began to leave before returning the gun, and she asked for it back. He threw it on the nightstand, she picked it up, started to walk past him, and that's when he grabbed her, and stomped on her feet, and hit her in the head, and slammed her against the mirror, and as she was trying to get away, she pulled out the pistol and shot him to stop her from hurting her because she was so scared he was gonna hurt her and her family. At 6.30 a.m., roughly two minutes, after Caleb arrived, defendant called 911 and stated she had shot Caleb. When law enforcement arrived, she was not significantly injured, did not complain of any pain. But Caleb had indeed been shot twice in the back from at least six inches away, possibly more. The defendant was indicted for and convicted of second-degree murder. The question before the Court of Appeals was whether the trial court erred by instructing on an aggressor doctrine instruction, including an aggressor doctrine instruction, in the self-defense instructions. To replace it in terms of the facts of this case, that is, whether there was evidence from which the jury could have found the defendant's story about shooting Caleb only to get him to stop his assault while in fear for her life was in fact false or an embellishment, and to find instead that defendant shot Caleb after the assault had ended as a sort of fatal comeuppance for his bad behavior. The former would of course be self-defense, whereas the latter would be revenge. <clears throat> so the answer to that question depends in large part on what makes an aggressor in this state. Whether someone is an aggressor, uh, as this court has articulated, depends on whether they fought willingly. 
law does not require a defendant to instigate a fight to be considered an aggressor. And even when a fight is begun by another person, one may become an aggressor by unnecessarily continuing or renewing the fight. That is, a person who is not the initial aggressor may become an aggressor if the initial aggressor abandons the fight and the opponent is aware of that. The Court of Appeals has articulated that in determining whether there is evidence that defendant was an aggressor, courts look at various factors. Circumstances precipitating the altercation, the presence of weapons, the degree and proportionality of the party's use of defensive force, the nature and severity of the party's injuries, and whether there is evidence that any party attempted to abandon the fight. Which then brings us to the question of whether does, do the facts support an aggressor instruction here? First of all, most importantly, <clears throat> for purposes of answering this question, we have to view the evidence in the light most favorable to the state. It is, of course, true that self-defense is a defense, and when we're deciding whether we instruct the jury on a defense, we view the evidence in the light most favorable to the defendant. But the aggressor doctrine, in particular, defeats the self-defense, either in whole or in part defense. And therefore, it only makes sense to view it in the light most favorable to the state. Indeed, it almost couldn't make sense any other way. The key facts here as to whether or not there was evidence from which the jury could conclude that defendant was the aggressor were, of course, that Caleb was shot in the back from some distance away. He was shot twice. Defendant and Caleb have a long and tumultuous history. The shooting was accomplished by defendant's own weapon, which Caleb had willingly surrendered possession of. And most importantly, well, not perhaps not most importantly, but also importantly, is that defendant's story did not align with the forensic evidence or common sense. Specifically, that although defendant purportedly suffered a vicious and frightening assault, she has suffered apparently no significant injuries and had no significant pain. That although defendant purportedly had the gun in her hand when Caleb assaulted her, he apparently didn't attempt to grab it or gain control of it. And, though, and although defendant purportedly shot Caleb while he was attacking her, he was nevertheless shot in the back. Viewed in the light most favorable to the state, this evidence suggests that defendant's description of events was false or embellished. Counsel, permit me to yes. read from North Carolina General Statute Section 14-51.2b as a setup to my question to you. The lawful occupant of a home, and I'm going to excerpt accordingly just to get to the pertinent points. The lawful occupant of a home is presumed to have held a reasonable fear of imminent death or serious bodily harm to himself or herself or another when using defensive force that is intended or likely to cause death or serious bodily harm to another if the person upon whom defensive force is used had unlawfully and forcefully entered a home. Mm -hmm. Was that presumption rebutted? I think, give me the question one more time. Sure. Was the presumption, the statutory presumption rebutted that as you applied the law statutorily to these facts, the defendant forcefully entered the home, and I don't think there's any dispute about that, mm -hmm. that she therefore, the defendant, had a presumption upon being in reasonable fear of death or serious bodily injury to herself or either her daughter who was in an adjoining room, that she would be presumed to be able to use force that was intended to potentially cause death or serious bodily harm to the defendant because of the way he entered. Did the evidence rebut that presumption? 
The evidence established, so if we look, if we continue to look, that an, the answer to that question, I think, is related to 14-51.4. Right. Which <clears throat> says that the, the defensive habitation is not available to a person who used defensive force and who initially provokes the use of force against himself or herself. And so we have, then we have the sort of statutory packing in of the aggressor doctrine. But which so, one of those would therefore need to operate first in the state's eyes? Because I understand that you're saying by way of the instruction that would be appropriate, the aggressor instruction that such indicia in the evidence, such as being shot in the back, mm -hmm. as the uh, as as the decedent was, the fact that he had thrown down the gun and therefore had surrendered the very weapon that was used against him, would therefore give light to the instruction being appropriate. But if the evidence did not uh, rebut the statutory presumption, does your instruction element even come into play? I think I, I skipped part of my answer. Uh, I, should, I should have given you. In 14-51.2, one of the aspects in which that presumption may be rebutted, the presumption set forth in subsection B of this section shall not apply or shall be rebuttable and does not apply in any of the following circumstances. The person against, the person against whom defensive force is used has discontinued all efforts to unlawfully and forcefully enter the home and has exited the home. So to me, I think in, in this circumstance, this is a situation where we, we, can, we can tie that evidential showing together. We have somebody who got shot in the back. I think it's super important, and th this is one of the, the, the key factors. When I inherited this case and I was reading this, this briefing, it, it is very important in my mind that this woman, the defendant, absolutely may have had there was enough evidence that she presented that somebody could absolutely conclude that this was self-defense, lawful defense of habitation. That's, that's not a, I, I don't doubt that, and I don't dispute that, and that's why the jury was instructed on that front. The question is whether or not there was any evidence from which, in, in particular on these facts, from which the jury could have reasonably concluded that her explanation of what occurred was in fact false based on the forensic evidence that was available there. That same forensic evidence would operate to rebut the presumption under 14-51.2, or it would uh, render the defensive home unavailable under 14-51.4. Did the defendant present evidence at trial? She did testify. Yes, sir. Let, let me ask you this, a couple of factual questions. Um, her testimony at trial, which seemed to have differed from the statement she gave mm -hmm. after the event and different than what she said even later on, uh, indicated that uh, when she got the gun back, she pulled the holster or pulled the gun out of the holster before she shot the defendant. What? Uh, and again, I, I like the way that you've uh, phrased it because, you know, defense of home was given, and the only question before us is, is it unlawful or was it wrong for the trial court to give the aggressor doc, uh, uh, doctrine in uh, the jury charge? Um, the fact that she pulled, in her own testimony, she pulled the gun out of the holster, uh, how is that relevant? I think it would certainly be evidence 
that, that I mean, the jury could construe that as evidence that she was fixing to shoot. Well, that, that it wasn't a continuous transaction if she right. had time. If she to had a moment. Yeah. I mean, and that larger, you could even almost zoom out on that question a little bit. I mean, he surrendered the gun. And again, this isn't about whether Caleb was a nice guy uh, or that he did nice things or that he, this, this was all, you know, I, I, I'm not disputing the testimony, substantially disputing the testimony of e even the defendant, except for that little shooting portion. And April, her daughter, obviously testified about overhearing a lot of combative. I, I, I don't dispute that he, he wasn't being nice. The jury um, heard time and again, I'm sorry, were you? No, uh, go ahead. The jury heard time and again um, uh, and, and again, I'm looking at the uh, uh, defense of the home, unlawful entry, mm -hmm. and yet they also heard he had a key. a key, and they also heard that there was nothing broken with regard to his entry. Right. Um, how would the jury consider those, that aspect? They, they might reject the defense of habitation option out of hand because it wasn't an unlawful entry. Um, or they might reject it because the presumption was forfeited, or they, they conclude that they believe, based on the forensic evidence, that, that he was leaving, and so she forfeited any presumption. Or they might conclude that she actively simply attacked him as he was leaving, and therefore forfeited any, uh, became an aggressor that forfeited any presumption. I think there are several ways that defensive habitation could fall in this case. Or they could uh, believe it, again, again, not being, you know, it's, it's all sort of presented there for the jury to decide because of the conflict. And the most significant conflict in this case to me is simply the conflict between her description of events, no matter how we read it, um, whether we try to hybridize what she told officers on the stand or, or both or we pick one or the other, and the fact that somebody was shot twice in the back from some kind of distance um, is something that this court has made an inference specifically as indicating that the person was retreating. And again, it's not whether the jury should have believed that, that Caleb was, or should have concluded or needed to conclude that she was an aggressor as a matter of law or something like that. But it's simply, is it enough from which the jury ought to be given the opportunity to draw the inference and decide whether they don't accept her version of events because it doesn't align with the forensic testimony. You know, this court in Cannon talked about being shot from the side and from behind as, quote, supporting the inference that defendant shot at the victim only after the victim had quit the argument trying to leave. And that's common sense. Uh, you know, bullets go in, in straight lines. I don't think that's terribly um, controversial. Williams, the Court of Appeals, shooting an unarmed victim twice, quote, clearly tends to show that the defendant was the aggressor. Um, all of these facts suggest, or at least give Bryce a reasonable inference that defendant's story of how it occurred ought to be, or, the, or that the jury could decide to reject her version of events. In, in determining whether the evidence was sufficient to submit the um, aggressor doctrine to the jury, I certainly understand that we take all the evidence in the light most favorable to the state, but that doesn't mean, does it, that it isn't our burden to, to, to look at all the evidence, uh, and, and so it doesn't mean we ignore some parts of the evidence, but we look at all the evidence taken in the light most favorable to the state. Is that correct? correct? Yes, and then on the question of whether or not the fact that um, he was shot twice is evidence supporting an aggressive doctrine um, instruction. Isn't, isn't the um, law of self-defense, if she believes, if she is justified 
in self-defense, believing that he, you know, I understand there was testimony from her daughter that he said, he, she heard him say, I'm going to kill you. Mm -hmm. 30 minutes before the incident, there was, he texted her saying something about, you may find yourself in a ditch. ditch yeah. mm -hmm. um, if she believed that he was trying to kill her mm -hmm. or her, cause serious physical injury or kill her daughter, mm -hmm. then she's justified in using deadly force, right? right? So that doesn't mean force that merely disables. No, no. And, and in fact, don't in our cases when people say, oh, I didn't mean to kill him, I just wanted him, you know, I just wanted him to I go away. Disable him or whatever. That's the, actually a problem. Exactly. Yeah. Mm -hmm. so, so why would being shot twice, I mean, I, I understand the evidence that he was shot in the back is, taking the light most favorable to the state is tending to show he was trying to leave the room. Right. But why would the fact that he was shot twice um, uh, tend to show she was the aggressor? I think maybe, maybe I should phrase it, be more careful. I think being shot twice in the back okay. <laughs> is it definitely sort of, uh, I, I think, adds, you know, is what gives gravity that. Because I could imagine a situation, uh, I've seen enough surveillance videos of, of people really being shot which is the unfortunate aspect of the job, but um, to know that n not every time does somebody just drop immediately. They often do. Um, but sometimes if she's, you know, as uh, uh, my colleague points out, Caleb was six foot one, I think 200 and some odd pounds, significantly larger than this woman. This is a small room. I could imagine a scenario where if all of this lined up, if we changed that one fact, if we had uh, Caleb being shot in the front twice from close range, then maybe this, this wouldn't be an issue at all. Right, but six inches is not very far. At least six inches. R right, but so, so it, was, it, it, could have been it could have been seven inches. It could have been seven, or it could have been seven feet. Right. Right, so it, it's just, it, it's sort of, it's that, that's good, but it's not point, it's not right. barrel to, to chest. Council, I still wanna make sure I'm clear on the Please. presumption in terms of how you answered that question, again, the statutory presumption here still looms, mm -hmm. and I'd like to know what it is that the state feels is the evidence that rebuts the presumption of 14-51.2b. The presumption of 14, let me see if I can try to answer it in too clear. The presumption doesn't apply at all. Defense of habitation is not available to an aggressor. So if there's evidence establishing that she's an aggressor or showing that she's an aggressor, they're, they're, then the, the presumption wouldn't be available out of the gate. Doesn't the presumption come before that? I think, well, not according to the statute, right? Uh, you know, under 14-51.4, under I always get these the points mixed up. Um, the, the, the defense of home is not available to a person who, and it goes on to relay the aggressor doctrine. Um, is there anything in 14-51.4 parens 2 that speaks to a presumption since you're using that statute to negate the presumption of 51.2b? And I understand maybe we're having an academic exercise, but from the standpoint of, again, trying to reconcile the two statutes as well as trying to understand when a presumption is operable prior to being rebutted, if rebutted at all. Mm -hmm. Just trying to line all of that up appropriately as the court's going to need to do, Absolutely. apparently. <laughs> yeah, no, 14-51.4, uh, uh, um, I don't think there's anything 
in there as I'm you know, skimming my eyes over it that says presumption. But it does say, it does open with that the defense of habitation is not available. And that is where, that, that defense is where that presumption resides. So uh, uh, you're sort of out uh, uh, if you're the, which I mean incidentally makes sense. I mean if 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 we had, and that that really is kind of what this case comes down to is this idea of if you are attacked, if you are assaulted, certainly in your home, if you are attacked and somebody busts in, you have the right to defend yourself, and uh, and you and there's a presumption in defensive habitation that comes into play that when somebody kicks in your door, you don't have to say, well, are you really here to hurt me? I'm not sure. I, I got to make you know I have to see if I have this fear and if it's reasonable. You get to have that presumption, but when someone starts to leave, even if they, even if they, even if you would have been justified at shooting them when they first came in, or when they first came in and attacked you, even if you would have had that, once they start to 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 go, you can't just sort of gun them down and then say, "Well, I had a presumption." But that that was not established by the evidence no. that he was trying to leave. That is something that is being inferred. Inference. That. Perhaps he was trying to leave because he was shot in the back, but does the inference that he may have been trying to leave enough to rebut a presumption that is statutorily in place? I don't know. I, I think it would be, it creates an interesting nexus with, with in terms of well, what do you do when you're talking about a jury instruction this way and you have a statutory presumption? I mean, the, the, the statutory aggressor doctrine seems to just take defensive home habitation just off the table. It's just not available. So then, but if you can't know whether that occurs unless, say, the defendant concedes it or something like that ahead of time, I'm not sure how you would then sort of leverage that in to give, to give the, I guess you'd have to give the jury the opportunity or you tell them it's a presumption or something. Okay, just say it another yeah, way. It, I, 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 I'm struggling with the aspect of yeah. the inference that he was shot in the back and that he may have been leaving right. if that is strong enough since it was no testimony as to that, but yet there's a statutory presumption in place that right. there has to be evidence inherent with the rebuttal of a presumption and that evidence apparently is not here. Well, yeah, I mean, you'd have, you, you have the, and I, I suppose I should also mention the, the idea that on the one hand, we have the statutory aggressor doctrine that says, you know, defense habitation is not available if you're an aggressor. Then, and so what does that mean and how do we work that in? And then, and then you've got the other uh, uh, angle on um, uh, 51.2 itself, which talks about the presumption being rebutted if the person was exiting. So one, one or the other. Um, and I think they both kind of overlap. Um, so, counsel, let, let me make sure nope. I understand. Had, had the defendant shot the decedent um, upon entry, if, if we look in the light most favorable to the defendant, I know this is not what we're supposed to, uh -huh. but had the uh, defendant shot the decedent upon entry, then uh, she would have the presumption. Certainly sounds that way. I think so, yeah. So, so what is the difference between the ability to shoot on entry versus the, uh, the shooting here? The imminence of the threat. So, so when somebody's leaving, or if there's an inference that somebody's departing, you are no longer being threatened. And I think that's interesting. There, there is a thread here that goes through a lot of the case law. 
um, which, you know, under both the common law, the old common law, we used to have four steps of self-defense. And then in the statutory, we have this, uh, this sort of two first steps, and then there's other statutory provisions that come in later. But those two steps, those first two steps are the same, which is that you're in fear of uh, death or substantial bodily, uh, in fear of imminent <coughs> or substantial bodily harm, uh, and that fear is reasonable. Those are the first two steps in the common law, and they're also the first ones that are put in 14-51.3. Uh, I think there's a lot of the case law takes that idea that they resolve this, this aggressor issue comes down in, 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 or the similar facts can come down in two ways. You can have a situation where you're talking about imminence of a threat. If somebody's leaving, they're not, the threat isn't imminent anymore, right? As opposed to when they're busting in and attacking me. Well, now, now I have an imminent threat that I have to repel. But if they attack me, as wrong as it is, as unlawful and mean-spirited and illegal as the attack is, if they're leaving, my remedy is to call the police. So, so if, if they're leaving, is that, uh, does that rebut the presumption that the person would be in reasonable fear of death or imminent bodily harm? I mean, that, that would seem to me, to, to, as a practical matter, rebut the presumption, sure. If somebody's leaving, I'm not in fear of this person killing me anymore because they're leaving. That's what leaving is. Um, well, I can see I'm running up here on my time. Let me make sure I, um, so the court, so I do think the evidence is sufficient to create an inference that defendant was the aggressor, particularly the, the shots in the back, obviously is the most important, but I think there's a sort of constellation of other, uh, uh, evidence around that in terms of their, um, you know, the sort of, uh, uh, cantankerousness or tumultuousness of the relationship and, and the fact that it was defendant's gun and, and, and so on. Um, the Court of Appeals opinion very clearly resolves all of these or the sort of any, any split inferences or any, 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 um, uh, uh, any dispute in these facts just in defendant's favor, right? They just, for example, they say that the, the court accepted that these shots were fired, quote, to try to get away from Caleb's attack. It's hard for me to, to reconcile when somebody's shot in the back. I don't, I don't quite understand how that, how that works. But again, the jury could have been entitled to believe it, but I think they were entitled to, an instruction, to the instruction that they got, and they obviously didn't believe it. Um, so the state does think the um, evidence supports an aggressor instruction. Um, at the end of the day, the case isn't about whether the defendant's story should have been believed or whether she... Uh, suffice to, her evidence uh, suffice to put the issue of self-defense for the jury. The state is not suggesting the jury was required to find that she was an aggressor. The state is arguing simply that there was evidence from which the jury could have concluded that she was the aggressor, which is to say someone who continues to pursue the fight after the opponent retreats. Um, this conflicts, defendant's story therefore conflicts with the forensic evidence. Um, and this gives rise to an inference that defendant may have unnecessarily and willingly continued the fight after he walks away. State, therefore, asks that the decision of the Court of Appeals be reversed. Stands on its briefing as to any issues of prejudice. And barring further questions, I'll reserve the last two minutes and 50 seconds for rebuttal. Thank you, counsel.